Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith podcast. This is already episode 37. And uh, one of the questions I often ask when I'm speaking to a group of people, especially when we're looking at the biblical text, uh, is are there moments when you're reading the Bible and there's this bizarre detail that seems very, very specific in there, and you think to yourself, why in the world does this matter? Or why is that even in there? Or how is this important? And what should I potentially know about that? Uh, Today, I'm thrilled to tell you, we're going to talk about a particular detail that is regularly spoken of in the Bible, and that detail is trees and plants. And the Bible actually speaks more about trees than any other living thing besides human beings. And so to help us learn more about this, we have with us today Dr. Matthew Sleeth. He's a former emergency room physician, but resigned from his position to teach and write about our call to care for the environment. He is the executive director of Blessed Earth and the author of several books, including The Gospel According to the Earth and Serve God, Save the Planet. And his latest book, which we'll talk about today, is titled Reforesting Faith. He lives in Lexington, Kentucky with his wife, Nancy, and together they have two grown children. Matthew, welcome to the Changing Faith podcast. It's great to be with you. Now, right right from the start, uh, what should our listeners know about you and your story? I shared just a kind of a flyby that you were a physician. Uh, now you've given your time and your life to serving um, others, really, and helping us to become those who steward the environment well. Well... I, I, I think you hit some of the most important things to me. Uh, Nancy uh, and I have been married for 38 years, and uh, many of those absolutely lovely years. <laughs> <laughs> That's an honest, uh, uh, honest evaluation. And uh, I have uh, two children. Both of my children are married. My oldest uh, son, Clark, is uh, married and has uh, one child, and he is at uh, Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. He's a pediatrician there. Oh, wow. And um, I, I'm going to go down a bunny trail for just a second, so get me back on track. But oh, good. He, he and I were talking, and uh, he had sent me a picture of uh, four of his patients. They were quadruplets that he has. Quadruplets oh, wow. are a one in 500,000 um, event. And uh, so he has quadruplets, triplets, and twins all in the nursery that he's running, and he's the only doctor there. And I don't believe there's probably a hospital in the United States that right now has quadruplets, triplets, and twins. That's amazing. Uh, in it. Isn't that amazing? I wonder what, um, do, you, do you know what the statistics are on triplets? Um, let's see. It's, uh, it's one in 77, uh, I believe, 79, something like that for twins. And then you kind of double that, multiply it. So it's one in 14, 1500 uh, pregnancies might be triplets. And oddly, where he is located, that little spot on the planet, uh, multiple births are the norm and not the exception. So that rate applies to here, but not there. Nobody knows why 
the people there are having you know multiple births, but it's a reality. And part of Christianity coming into that part of the world is um, it, it used to be thought by uh, the folks uh, there that it was bad luck to have these multiple births and they would expose the children. Um, now it's the exact opposite. Wow. He's he's keeping those kids alive. So that's my son. Uh, my daughter is uh, uh, married to a, a young man who just uh, graduated from seminary, and they are working in a orphanage in Kenya, a couple hours away from where my my son and his wife are. So that's a kind of a snapshot of my family. And you said before we started recording you and your wife moved to Lexington because your kids were there and now they're all in Kenya. That's right. <laughs> well, maybe well, Kenya be, will be your next stop. It, it, it probably will be. But um, my uh, son and uh, his wife will come home uh, in nine months and they'll have a year furlough and he'll be on faculty at the University of Kentucky here. Oh, and wow. uh, my daughter's coming back in three months and her husband's taking a church. So it's not, it's, um, although my son and his wife are permanently uh, uh, in in missions, uh, we'll get we'll get to have them back for a while. Oh, that's great! Now, I I first heard about you um, back in 2007. It was actually I was in the process of moving from Denver or from Grand Rapids, sorry, Michigan to Denver. Uh, and you spoke at Mars Hill in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I have a ton of friends who've uh, been there in the past and were there at that time. And you came and you spoke about caring for the environment and how caring for the planet is a way of serving God. And I- I'm curious, what led you to write about this, to speak about this, and ultimately to give your life to sharing about this incredibly important message? Uh, I'll back up to a time before I was a Christian, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, and um, my wife uh, comes from a conservative Jewish home, uh, conservative as in denomination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and when we were married, uh, neither family was happy with that. And my wife and I just walked away from religion. We thought, oh, religion is an excuse for people not to like each other, uh, not to treat each other you know, decently. Um, and uh, I went to uh, medical school and um, residency, and and my wife's religion and mine really became the American dream. Uh, live in the nicest home that you can, send your kids to the best schools that they can get into, um, uh, you know, live, live a comfortable life. And we went on vacation in February and stayed on an island off the southwest coast of Florida. And with the children asleep, my wife and I were sitting outside. It was nighttime. This island had no roads to it, so there's no traffic, no cars on the island. And it was quiet. Uh, there are no lights there. They don't want to disturb the wildlife. And so the Milky Way was spread out over top of us, hmm. and this beautiful, clean, tropical breeze blowing in off the Gulf of Mexico. And my wife turned to me and asked a question that was going to change my life. And she said, Matthew, what do you think the biggest problem in the world is? But keep in mind, we're not Christians or anything. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I said, the world's dying. I said, there aren't elms on Elm Street. There aren't chestnuts on Chestnut Street. There aren't caribou in Caribou, Maine. And 
um, the, the most numerous fish that was ever in the Great Lakes has gone extinct. And I said, there's no way we can do business as usual for another 100 years and expect that it's going to turn out okay. And um, then she thought for a moment and she said, what are you going to do about it? And I, I didn't have an answer. And we came back uh, to our home on the coast of Maine and a number of bad things happened. My wife's brother drowned in front of my children. I had a patient mm -hmm. that stalked me, and he ended up eventually killing his mother. And um, kind of the last um, thing in that series of bad events was on a Tuesday morning, I got home from work, and my wife went out for a walk, came back from the post office and said, Matthew, we got to turn on the television. Something's really wrong in Manhattan. And we watched as the Twin Towers uh, mm. fell and then got a phone call from my next-door neighbor. She had a son my son's age. They'd grown up together. And she said, Matthew, I need your help getting Jamie from school. His father was in the first plane uh, that oh. hit the Twin Towers. Uh, and I woke up to the fact that there was evil on the planet. <clears throat> and also I'm thinking about a world that's dying. And in this really dark place, and it was a dark place, my wife had gotten depressed after her brother died. It's understandable. Yeah. Uh, I uh, went, started looking for answers, and I read through the, um, the Ramayana. I read through the Bhagavad Gita. I read through the Quran, lots of other books. And the, the, the change point for me was when I picked up a Bible in the hospital waiting room, and I'd never read the Bible before. We didn't own one. We had a library in our house, but we didn't own a Bible. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll read this. Well, the Bible's a big book. Where do you put your toe into it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the, the great news is, uh, and oh, people of Wesleyan theology uh, term this prevenient grace. That's when God extends grace to us, and we don't even know God exists. Um, the, the prevenient grace there was that my parents named me Matthew instead of numbers. <laughs> and so I opened up and started in at the, at the book of Matthew, and um, I met the Lord there. I met Christ, and that just began to change everything. Um, and eventually I came to my wife and, and said that, you know, I believe there's God, I believe in Jesus, and I believe that we are um, supposed to uh, be part of the solution here and, and, and not the problem. And I want to quit my job and we need to change our lifestyle, etc. So we, we moved into a house the size of our garage and kind of <laughs> downscaled our energy footprint and that, and that sort of thing began. Um, and one after another, all the members of my family became Christians. Um, and we started going to a church and I volunteered to plant trees at that church. And I said to the pastor something like, I, I'd like to plant trees around the church. He kind of looked blank. And I said, you know, it would be a biblical thing to do. <laughs> and he said, you have the theology of a tree hugger. And he did yes. not intend this as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I thought maybe he's right. You know, maybe Christians aren't supposed to care about the planet. Uh, maybe we're supposed to care about God and that's it. 
But since I found out about the Lord through the Bible, I went back to the Bible and I read from Genesis to Revelation to see what the Bible had to say about Mm. this. And that is what formed my theology and calling, if you will, uh, to, to not only talk and write about this, but to live it out in our own personal lives. Yeah. And you've written and spoken about it. As I mentioned, you had two other books, but your latest book, uh, Reforesting Faith, it, it seems to come not only out of what you're learning, but out of a, a passion um, that, that you have right from the beginning. You talk about how you've always loved trees. Where did that come from? Uh, I, that came from being a kid. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've thought about this. I grew up in Maryland at, with no air conditioning. And uh, Maryland is uh, famous for its swampy summers, kind of like Iowa. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, a tree is a very valuable thing to a child in August in yep. a place like that without air conditioning. And so you kind of naturally get under those trees and play in them and, and that sort of thing. I also grew up in a in a home that uh, wasn't wasn't maybe the worst home on the planet, but wasn't the best either. Um, I was living on my own by the time I was sixteen, but always the woods and um, and and being out in them was a safe place. It, it was a it was a good place to be. It made sense to me, and uh, and so I think in in many ways uh, my, my youth did form uh, the love that I have uh, for trees. Uh, first tree I remember was a dogwood. And, uh, you know, being under a dogwood in bloom uh, with the sun coming through, and uh, it, it was just my own private little world under there. And there's these beautiful red berries, which uh, we were told were poisonous. I could never get my younger brother to eat them to find out whether that was true or not. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Did so, he ever? Did, or did you? Uh, no, okay. no, I was, wasn't <laughs> able to get him to eat them. Uh, and, and so I, you know, just a number of things came together. And then as life went along, I became a carpenter. I worked with trees in that respect. Uh, my wife and I married under a tree, uh, and uh, everywhere I've gone, I've planted them and. Uh, in residency, I tree-lined the street that we lived on, and it's a kind of a neat thing a few decades later to be able to go to Google Earth and actually see where you may have changed the planet for the better. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And you, you've already alluded to it uh, a little bit, but you, you speak about the, this disconnection um, that people experience between the natural world and God. And you, you talked about how... Um, going to the woods, there's something there. Out here in Colorado, um, speaking for myself, one of one of my places of greatest, I would say, centering reconnection is when I'm out in the uh, or up in the mountains. Whether I'm standing on the top of a mountain, getting ready to ski down it in the win- in the summertime, camping with my family, uh, taking a day of solitude, and going on a long hike, whatever it is. And you write in the book. Uh, You say, God is close at hand in the fields and woods. Unfortunately, when I was a kid, no one told me so. And then here's the quote. The theological move to disconnect God from the natural world was well underway by the time I was born. The succession of pastors who preached in the little church near our house forgot to mention that God made special provisions, and the pages are sticking together, special provisions in his laws for the peach, pear, and apple trees 
planted on the farms around us. And you refer there to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Can, can you expand on, on that? First, the, the idea of how have we made this disconnection so radically uh, in so many places, uh, particularly in modern Western culture, and then even this, this part of God making provisions for these trees. That, when I read that, it was such a curious thing for me to read and kind of a, um, made me really begin to wonder about how much we've actually missed. Well, I, th- I think there, there has been a, a large disconnect that the person, the average person going to church today is not aware of. Uh, and and that, that, that's grown really to an extreme point where many, and for your listeners who don't know, the, God has given me the blessing and sometimes the task of preaching uh, all over the United States and, and elsewhere. And um, I can't tell you how many churches that I've been to where not even a ray of God's light is allowed into the church. There's nothing inside a church that God made. Everything mm. inside a church is man-made, and so there aren't flowers anymore. There's no natural light. There are no trees, etc. Um, we've we've really disconnected ourselves, and that wasn't always the case. Uh, one of the uh, ways that God let me know that I was on the right track early on in this is that a neighbor knocked on my door and said, well, I've just cleaned out my dead aunt's house. There were a box of religious books. You believe in God here. Take them. <laughs> and, and handed me this box of mostly old, moldy you know, books. Yeah. But at the, at the bottom was an absolute treasure. And it was a 140-year-old King James study Bible published by Thomas Nelson Publishing. Now, Thomas Nelson Publishing still publishes a King James Study Bible. But in the one from 140 years ago, there were 20 pages on trees and plants. There were multiple full-page pictures, in addition to that, of, of famous trees. If I had shown probably any Christian in the United States a hundred years ago, a picture of Abraham's oak, they would have been able to identify the tree. Wow. And, and at the time that Bible was published, I believe Spurgeon was still preaching and Spurgeon would preach again and again on this subject. And so I list in Reforesting Faith, uh, the latest book, some of Spurgeon's sermon titles and they're Christ, the tree of life, uh, uh, the tree in God's court, uh, the apple tree in the woods, the the sound in the mulberry bush. Not only would his listeners have been used to hearing sermons about trees in the Bible, but each of those titles probably would have triggered uh, them to go to a particular place in Scripture and brought up the lesson that was there. Hmm. Uh, and... Um, and it's it's not just that Bible. Since then, I have a uh, 75-year-old Thompson chain reference Bible. It's got all kinds of tree illustrations in it. Um, but what has happened is that the average uh, Christian today has never heard a sermon on trees or necessarily even the natural world and how it plays in uh, to the Bible or their faith. The, the shame of that is that's a heresy. 
Hmm. That's, that's not an oversight. It's a heresy. And we've worked ourselves into what was a very early heresy in the church of dualism. Uh, yes. For your lis- listeners who aren't familiar with that term, what dualism is, um, is when we assign value only to spiritual things and no value to the material, or we don't assign value and God to the, the material. Yes. Uh, what that does is it puts God inside these boxes we call churches and, and doesn't allow him <laughs> or allow us as seekers of God to find him elsewhere. And yet, when I open the Bible, I find that that trees are everywhere here. They're, um, on the first page of the Bible, the first psalm tells us to be like a tree. On the first page of the New Testament, Bible ends uh, with a tree on the last page. And um, that God repeatedly, again and again and again and again, meets us as humans by trees. Um and assigns all kinds of uh, tasks and values and that sort of thing to trees. Um, so the heresy means that we must uh, overlook part of our Bible continually. And it, it, just a, one interesting illustration, of, uh, uh, a few years ago I was in a, in a church and uh, I was teaching a group, a smaller group, about 100, and I somehow didn't have my Bible with me. It got left at the hotel or something like that. And so I had to borrow somebody's Bible, and it was one of those duct-taped, well-loved Bibles, <laughs> yeah. um, proudly highlighted in multiple different colors and everything. Oh, yeah. And I began to realize that I could find the passages that I wanted very quickly because they were the verses that were unhighlighted in that Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, and it's interesting to hear you speak about the dualism uh, because the early church identified that dualism, which came ultimately began with Socrates and then was perpetuated in the writings of Plato and Aristotle built on it. Um, the early church and the followers of Jesus, John in particular, really began to identify this is one of the greatest threats to the proper message of Jesus. And they, this group's called the Gnostics, for those of you who are listening, which they weren't like a denomination, but it was more of a broad philosophy expressed by many different groups. And uh, one of the things I've been doing lately is, out of my own curiosity, I've gone back and started reading a lot about church history, particularly in the first uh, five to seven centuries. And it's interesting to see how many saw the material and natural world inextricably bound to the spiritual world. And that even in their prayers... That uh, that were written and then would be more of a liturgy in their in their ceremonies in their gatherings. You, you see them expressing gratitude um, for the elements, for the earth, for the trees, and, and understanding that these are extensions of God's grace. That these are expressions of God's wild creativity and love. And they 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 were able to hold the goodness of creation and the presence of heaven both as real things in their midst, that the sacred was not to be found only in the church or in the church buildings, but the sacred was all around us because this is all part of what God's done. And so it, it's fascinating to me to see how we've, uh, th- that dualistic thing came in somewhere around, depending who you talk to, the sixth, seventh century into the church. But now in our modern world, we cut ourselves off from the natural world um, 
almost every time I'm, we, I'm sitting in an office right now, I drove here in a car, I'll go home to my house, sleep inside. I mean, you just, you don't realize how cut off we are from that. And it, it, it seems to almost express itself in the way that we practice our faith. Yeah, yes, the, the, the thing, the promise of dealing with this heresy of dualism, of, of putting all of creation, God's second book, as, uh, as Calvin called it, um, yeah, back and into Saint our— Patrick called it that, too. Yeah, if we put that back into our theology, what I found is that God becomes richer, more beautiful— and we're able to see evidence of God at work uh, much more easily. Mm. Um, because if you think about it, if you, if you confine God to a box, <laughs> the only place you're going to meet God is in the box. Right. Um, where, whereas I'm, I'm just seeing this, this beauty and these miracles happening around me all the time. And I think part of that has been dealing with the dualism um, mm. that's so prevalent in the church today. Yes, so if if somebody's reading the Bible and they come across uh, a verse about a tree or um, a branch, um, the fruit that you mentioned earlier, um, what would be helpful in in engaging that? What are some helpful tools you found in in even beginning to identify those things, to understand those things, why they're there? The well, the first thing I would do is back up to the beginning, back up to Genesis one. And just uh, study the first few chapters uh, of the Bible. If you highlight every sentence in the first three chapters of the Bible that has a tree in it, you will have highlighted a third of, of the sentences there. Hmm. What has God assigned to those trees? Well, they're made on day three, and there's this sing-songy back and forth about where the seeds are in those trees and everything. That classification system of plants is the same classification system of angiosperms and gymnosperms that biologists use today. Wow. Um, it, this is nothing one of those has examples, changed. by the way, where I say sometimes the Bible seems so primitive and backward, and then other times it's way ahead of its time. Yes, uh, here, yeah. here, here it is on day three, way, way, way ahead. <laughs> and then the next thing that's uh, mentioned as you, as you get into uh, Genesis, um, uh, there, there's a line, uh, and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. The interesting thing is that that's absolutely true today. There's nothing that creeps or moves on this planet, and that's that's the definition there of animal. It's got to creep. It's got to move. Um, that uh, that moves without breaking apart carbon bonds and extracting the energy from them. And those carbon bonds were initially put together with photosynthesis. So the way you and I run is still absolutely here. here the next line in the Bible completely the way it works uh, today. Um, and, and then in, in Genesis 2, um, G- Genesis 1 is, I, I believe, with Tim Keller, that it's a song attacked on the front of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Po- um, we, we refer to it as the creation poem. Yeah, the creation poem, our, our, our song. And then once that song is finished, and it finishes at Genesis 2-4, it's one place that the line and chapter break are in the wrong place. Yeah. Uh, 
and and then God is going to, with his own two hands, make two things. So this is a heads up from Scripture. There's very, very uh, important things that God is about to do, because he's spoken everything else into existence in, in the chapter before. Now we're going to zoom in, and he's going to make man. He's going to make Adam, and he, and he blows the breath of life into Adam's nostrils, and then God pivots and plants the trees, and setting up this relationship between us and trees. Um, I think it's what it's saying is this is where your next breath will come from, and that yeah. is that's that's where our next breath comes from is from those plants, um, and and God puts uh, Adam into this garden, and and He says it makes He, he made to spring up from the earth. Um, the trees that are pleasant to the sight. Now that is a one-off line in scripture. Uh, you know what the the National Bureau of Standards they have like what a yard is, and that's the standard for the whole world. Um, uh, they actually have what a meter is, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the standard for the whole world. This is the standard for the rest of the Bible of what beauty is. Mm. Um, and that standard will not change when God tells his people how to make a lampstand, it should look like a tree. When he tells them how to make a corbel in the temple, it's going to be decorated like a tree at the top. When he tells them how to, how to in the high priest's robe, it will be uh, have a tree bobble, uh, a pomegranate at, at the bottom. And that aesthetic doesn't change. And Jesus really gives his listeners a refresher course on this. By the way, trees are the king of the plant kingdom, whereas flowers would be the shortest lived uh thing in the plant kingdom that gets referred to in the Bible. So that's kind of between flowers and trees. Now, trees have flowers, but flowers don't have trees. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so keep that in mind. So Jesus is uh, talking to his listeners, and he's saying, imagine Jerusalem at the height of its power. Because when Jesus is there, Jerusalem is a backwater in, in the Roman Empire. But at one time, it ruled the world. And he's saying, imagine when, when the world was ruled from here in Jerusalem, and imagine a state visit, um, and think of the, all the chariots that would roll out, and those, those hundreds of shields uh, with, made out of gold, and, and the trumpeters, and that sort of thing. And, and then Solomon getting you know, attired, and, and these stewards putting the gems in his crown, etc. And Jesus says, imagine that, the height of civilization, I will beat you with one flower. <laughs> one lily of the field tops mm. all of your <laughs> accomplishments. Yeah. So that aesthetic lasts from one end of the Bible to the other. And then in Revelation 22, we get a picture of heaven. And, and that is a place of trees. There's God's throne, the yeah. water to... Uh, uh, comes from that throne to make the, the river of life, and at the terminus of the river of life is the tree of life, and that tree, uh, when we are when we keep God's commandments, we are allowed in through the gate, and when we eat from that tree, all the nations are healed. Mm. Um, and so, um, it's a very, very rich tale. Yeah. 
You know, it's fascinating. We, um, I lead trips to Israel with a good friend of mine every other year. And you referred there, um, for those of you who are listening who didn't catch what he was referring to, it's, you referred to the Sermon on the Mount. Not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of mm-hmm. these, referring to the lily. And what we do is we go up on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee and give everybody somewhere around 45 minutes and ask them spread out on the hillside and read the Sermon on the Mount and read it out loud um, and then learn through your senses. And everyone comes back and always begins commenting on the power of Jesus's images and specifically the power of Jesus's images that always seem to involve the natural world. And uh, when we were there this last time, they received over 140% of needed rainfall. And so the flowers were crazy. And Mm. so many people talked about the the power of those words as they're sitting literally in this case among the lilies of the field. And um, one of the things that does come alive is, and makes sense too, is how close Jesus lived to the earth. Um, and, and he mostly taught he on did. field trips. Yeah, exactly. As they were walking along the road, um, and, and you talk about this too. You talk about how the, the the life of the historical Jesus is inseparable from from trees. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. He's. He grows up in this carpenter's home. Two out of the three gifts that he's brought as a child are are made from trees. And he's going to have this earthy, organic language. And he's going to talk about the kingdom of heaven being like a tree and and the word of God being like seeds and, and parable of good soil and bad soil and that sort of thing. Um, and, and so it's inseparable. Now, it's there's a very interesting pattern with Jesus, and that is that even though he is surrounded by palm trees, on Palm Sunday they're, they're throwing trees in front of him, uh, he never mentions palm. And I, I want to come back to that point in just one second. Um, but it, and he's, his favorite place to go pray, I think, and, and to, to commune uh, is a grove of olives. And yet he never mentions the word olives. Uh, we're told in Scripture to be oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Oaks are never mentioned. The only uh, g- genus of trees that Jesus mentions are the ficus, the figs. And so you know something's going on when it's edited from all trees down to one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's kind of a heads up. One of the things that I hear as I'm kind of out and about, particularly in seminaries, and I've uh, been able to teach in about 50 seminaries, uh, is this thing that Jesus was just speaking a vernacular. Uh, he's just speaking like a local yokel. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. His language is beautiful. It's inspired. Uh, it's inspiring. And um, one of the reasons I know that the that criticism, if you will, of Jesus is wrong, is when you speak in a vernacular, it's so that people understand you. Mm-hmm. There's a shared understanding. When Jesus speaks in that vernacular about the parable of the four soils, his disciples don't understand him. He has to leave the Rosetta Stone of unpacking that and explaining it so that we can begin to understand his other 
um, parables. Uh, so he's not speaking in a vernacular. He's speaking in an organic language, which is uniquely his. Hmm. Yeah. This oh, is let me come back to say, uh, Palm Sunday, by the way. You oh, mind. yeah, Palm Sunday. We uh, just went through that. Now, do you? I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you have a Bible in front of you? Uh, I have a Bible. Where is it? I have a bunch behind me. You want me to put grab, it away from the microphone for a second? One. Yeah, sure. Grab a Bible. <laughs> Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the... Uh, I'm going to do the Bible I have on my computer. Is that fair? That's, that's fair. Which one do you have? Which one are you opening up to? Uh, NIV. NIV. Go to Mark 11.8, because that's the description of Palm Sunday. Oh, yeah. Yep. And read that. Many spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Do you cut branches off the field? Nope. Yeah, that word is dendron, and that's tree. And that's an example of one of the hundreds of times that either the word tree or words that describe trees have been subtracted from Scripture. So I list six words, tree, seed, leaf, branch, root, and fruit, and I count them up in the King James Bible, and they occur 967 times. In the NIV that you just read from, uh, those words are subtracted 267 times from Scripture. Not uh, surprising. <laughs> and so, and, and it's not just subtracting the words. If, if in uh, a King James Bible or uh, a great Bible uh, 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 or, or an older version, um, Abraham plants a grove of trees, in our modern translations, and it's plural, by the way, he plants trees um, with an S on it. And in our modern Bibles, he only plants a tree. And so trees have literally been subtracted by modern uh, Bible translators from Scripture. They know full well that they're doing it, by the way. This is not an accident. The word dendron and etsy are not hard to translate, uh, and they're doing it on purpose. Yeah, we, we've talked about this very thing on Sunday mornings that every, uh, it's not just the straight up Greek to English or Hebrew to English. They're also making interpretive decisions. And we use NIV in our context as a way, because it's, it's often the easiest to read, but you also then lose something with it. Um, you, you do. And I, I believe, um, if you want to get serious about this, you have to understand that the uh, interpreters, uh, the Bible translators are also interpreting and they're throwing their interpretations uh, into this and they do not like trees. Right. right. They don't like trees. They have subtracted them wholesale from Scripture. And one of the things I mentioned in Reforcing Faith is when Masada was being uh, excavated in the 60s, they found a, a jar of date palm pits. Uh, they were dated as being about 2,000 years old. They put them in a drawer, and for 40 years they sat there, and then somebody said, maybe, maybe it's just possible that they'll come back to life if we plant them. And so there's actually a, a tree called Methuselah that's come back to life from those plantings. That's amazing. So we could... Which, by the way, Scripture uses as the, as the metaphor for uh, rebirth and um, uh, uh, life everlasting as a tree. When Job is just crushed by all the things that have 
happened to him, he says, and yet there is hope for a tree. And I mm. know that my Redeemer lives, and in this body I will see him. And so resurrection is, is very much tied to trees in Scripture, too. That's so fascinating. So you have, by the way, I could listen to you talk about this, for, I think, for quite a long time. Um, and, and if you're listening and you feel the same way, you should buy reforesting faith. Um, that aside, let me go back to something you said earlier, where there was a pastor who referred to you as a tree hugger. Um, I can proudly identify with you. I had an individual years ago come thundering down the aisle at the end of my teaching, uh, which is something you never want to see, and said, you're nothing. I, I actually got the adjective, you're a lousy tree hugger um, because of the teaching I did. But what is the, um, what is the hesitancy that you've seen with regard toward the environment, um, that some feel a little bit unconcerned about it. Um, I've heard some say this is just going to end up to where we're worshiping the creation. Where have you seen that um, happen? And have you seen the, the attitude in the hearts beginning to change uh, in a more health, helpful and healthy direction? Uh, I'll start with a positive here. I've yeah. really seen uh, a change. This this book has been out for two weeks, but it, it took off like it had rocket fuel in it. Oh, it's so and exciting. within within two weeks time it's it's been in the Washington Post and the New Yorker and um and now I've the been Changing on in, Faith Podcast. <laughs> in, NPR and I uh, and on Fox News and the American Family Association, that's a really wide bandwidth of people talking about it. And and now on your podcast, finally, <laughs> I've made it to uh, to to the to the right listeners. And um, and so it's speaking across those traditional boundaries of left, right, blue state, red state. Yeah. Um, and and that's because. God doesn't really care about those boundaries. Amen. We don't know who the optimates and the popularities are. Jesus doesn't mention them, but those are the ruling powers in Rome at the time. And it must have seemed like they would go on forever, and of course they've disappeared. Just as Republican and Democrat, I'm sure, will disappear someday, but the word of the Lord will live forever. Mm. And uh, and. And so this uh, talking about trees kind of puts us into a different time scale than just our politics. A tree is the only thing that begins to even hint at the time scale that God lives on. Yeah. Uh, we have we have uh, trees that are almost six thousand years old in in our country. Um, God, as as I say, God loves trees so much, He gives them a ring on every one of their birthdays, <laughs> uh, and, and so we actually know how old trees are, um, and and God would would knew that that we would be able to tell how old trees are. So it's kind of a way of putting us into the context of our time scale versus the time scale of God. Yeah, and one of the things that um, I love, and this was another point of connection uh, between you and me. Uh, as you speak about trees and, and poverty, um, and we're, we at Denver Community Church, we partner with the wonderful organization Plant with Purpose. I'll actually be traveling to Haiti with them this summer, um, and I know that you have been connected with them. So I'd love for you to talk about 
um, trees and poverty and, and elaborate on how are these connected and, and how are trees actually a vehicle that ultimately serves, serves us as people in a very practical way? Sure. Well, the, of course, Scripture holds trees and particularly free, trees that feed us in very high regard, even in a time of war. There can be no more stressful time than a time of war, um, but uh, this is what distinguished or was to distinguish Jews from the surrounding cultures. They're not to cut a tree down. Not true with Assyria. They were like the Borg, no resistance and everything's assimilated, you know, yeah. knocked down. And and so uh, uh, tree, trees become uh, very important, but they're very important to our, our everyday and our practical life. Uh, this Bible's written, I, I don't think uh, anybody would have guessed that we'd have water mains in New York City still made of trees. It's true. Um, uh, submarines in our nuclear free fleet, whose main bearings are made out of, of wood, etc. So trees just, they, they make life possible for humans. And God is in the life business, and therefore he wants us to take care of the thing that makes life possible for us. And, and so one of the, uh, I mentioned Plant With Purpose, they're doing reforestation efforts. Uh, oh, in, yeah, in let me. Haiti. I'd, I'd love to, yeah, to hear you talk a little bit about that. And part of the reason, by the way, if you're listening, so often we can talk about these theories and it can be like, oh, wow. And so maybe if you're walking around, you'll look at a tree differently. And part of the reason I'm, I'm asking this question is I want us to think, what could be a next step for us to actually act on something that we're learning Remembering that when Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice, that's somebody who's wise. Um, and so this idea of practice and what we see happening more and more um, rooted in a faith tradition like Plant With Purpose and like what you're doing. So here in the United States, when uh, we say God blessed America, boy, he did with trees. We have the oldest mm -hmm. tree on the planet. We have the biggest tree on the planet. We have the largest uh, clonal tree, Pando, there in uh, Colorado, which is an aspen. Um, so w w we got blessed with trees, you know, more than just about anybody, I think, uh, as far as uh, the geography of here. And and those those trees actually take care of us and they give us wealth. And so if you look at places around the world that don't have enough trees, the standard of living begins to fall so that the most deforested place in the Western Hemisphere is Haiti, mm -hmm. which is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. The second most deforested country in the Western Hemisphere is Honduras. And guess where they sit on the scale of poverty in the Western Hemisphere? They're the second poorest country. Um, so when you and your church members go and work in Haiti and you plant trees with plant with a purpose, uh, you're part of uh, the gospel, the good news, because, because God wants to meet all of our needs, not just spiritual and afterlife. Um, he's come that we have life and have it more abundantly now. Yeah. And um, uh, so I thought, uh, and so I really wanted to, with this book, support Plant With Purpose, not even my own ministry, another one. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, that's, that's what I did with the uh, advance and the proceeds I'm getting from the book. They're all going to Plant With Purpose. That's so fantastic. Yeah, we were... We were thrilled to really solidify a partnership with them. 
that came about. It was just uh, last September, October. And so it, um, we're, we're, I'm excited to see the work that they're doing. I'm so thrilled, um, Dr. Sleeth, of the work that you've given yourself to um, in, in such, a, such an unassuming way, in such a way that's rooted in the text and, and really, I think, just showing us how broad and wide and deep the Christian tradition is and even the, the, the Jesus that we think we know. There's always like this new side that we're continuing to learn. So uh, for, for those who are listening, how can they learn more about your work? Where can they find you online? Um, if, if you simply type my name in, you'll get to one of the sites, but uh, matthewsleeth.com or blessedearth.org are the two organizations. And I, I have a uh, an ask for you and your readers. Uh, I say this book has really taken off and one of the exciting things for me is that it's opened the door between Christians and non-Christians, yeah. pro-tree people and people who are apathetic or against it. Uh, and and just, uh, you know, if, if, if your listeners get this book and they read it, um, give it to somebody who's not like them. Give it yes. to somebody who's maybe either a, a Christian who doesn't believe in uh, tree hugging or, <laughs> or a tree hugger who doesn't believe in the creator yeah. and, and use it to, to start a dialogue. Um, and I, that would be my ask for your readers. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll say that it, it, the, the language in it is both very accessible incredibly informative and it's not one of those like oh my goodness if this dude uses one more christianese word i'm gonna you know it's 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 an incredibly uh i think it's an important book i'll put it in that category i think it's an important book so and this book and all of other um matthew sleeth's book are available um where is it amazon where books are sold amazon christian book distributors uh um has them uh and and probably local bookstores have this one Perfect. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for giving us your time and for being with us here on the Changing Faith Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And for all of you who are listening, uh, thank you again for joining with us on this episode. My hope is that we will learn to see more and more, just as we've learned together today from Dr. Sleeth, uh, that as ancient wisdom reflects this magnificent, beautiful, stunning universe in which we live, tells us so much about the love and the glory and the creativity of God or of the divine, of the Christ, as Paul says, who is all and is in all. And so I highly encourage you to uh, purchase this latest book. It's titled Reforesting Faith, um, so that you can learn for yourself how this, uh, this story told through trees is deeply embedded and is deeply true in the world in which we live. So that is all for today. Thank you for joining with us. And as always, until next time, much love and peace be with you.